Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from John chapter 16. Listen carefully because this is God's gospel. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in him. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. The words that you have inspired for us to build us up in our faith, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. And we pray that the Spirit who lives in us and who is the subject, the main subject of this passage, would work in us today, transforming our minds and planting this word in our hearts so that it grows and bears fruit. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The martyr, William Tyndale, He understood the first four verses of John 16, which we talked about last week. With regard to his persecution, Tyndale said, I never expected anything else. Followers of Christ have been chosen, Jesus says, or called, Peter says, out of the world. And and Jesus says that this deliverance will cause enmity between us and the world. The more Christ-like your walk is, the more likely you will face some form of of hatred or persecution from those who don't know Christ. But, as our text shows, as the Gospel of John has shown really all along, and we're in John 16, verse 4, in spite of this enmity between us and the world, Jesus gives us a mission to the world. Our basic orientation to the world is not one of antagonism. It hates us, but we don't hate it in return. Nor is it one of separatism. 
So we shouldn't despise those outside of Christ um, or have nothing to do with those outside of Christ. According to the sermon text, our basic orientation to the world, just like the Holy Spirit's orientation to the world is one of mission. The Spirit whom Jesus gave us is, sin, is a sending Spirit. He's a missional Spirit. He drives us out into the world to accomplish a mission through us. It's His mission. It becomes ours. But He accomplishes it through us. So our mission is His mission. His mission becomes our mission. We see an, an illustration of this in the ministry of Jesus. At the beginning of his public ministry, what happens to kick things off? It's at the beginning of not John's gospel, but the other three. Jesus was baptized. And when he was baptized, heaven was ripped open and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, it says. And, and do you remember what happens very next? What does the Spirit do? Well, He sends Jesus on a mission. Mark 1, verse 12 says, Immediately the Spirit drove Him into the wilderness. And so we see the Spirit wasting no time in sending Jesus on His first mission as the anointed Messiah. He drove Christ out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. And the Spirit does the same Thing to baptized followers of the anointed Christ. We are anointed too. If you're a baptized disciple of Jesus, then you're on a spirit-driven, spirit-anointed, spirit-empowered mission. You have a job to do. And your job is not identical with, but similar to the disciples' job. Their mission was to live together as a new called-out community of faith. That's what Jesus is talking to them about in these chapters right here at the, in the heart of, of John's gospel before we get to the climax, to the most important event at the end. But right, right here, Jesus, on the eve of His death, is teaching His disciples about what it means to be this new community that He is establishing and will establish principally in His death and resurrection. They were to live, they were to live out their faith in this new community in such a way as to show the world the truth and the power of the good news. The last verse of John 15 that we looked at last week says that they were to testify to the gospel, bear witness about Jesus. They, they, they were to bear witness about who Jesus is, why He came, what, what He came to do, and what the right response to the Messiah is. In today's passage, Jesus continues to tell these disciples, He continues to tell us, the church, who are also members of that new community that he established. He continues to tell us about this witness, what it looks like, how it takes shape. Our job 
the Spirit's role as well. And that's the main thing, the Spirit's role. Jesus is saying here that the disciples would be used by the Spirit to teach those in the world about their sin, about their false righteousness, self-righteousness, we could say, and about their bad judgment or their unrighteous judgment, which is a theme in John's gospel, righteous judgment versus unrighteous judgment. Those are some of the things that the Spirit is going to do through us. So that's how we need to understand those three key words, by the way, and I'll flesh this out later, but in verse 8, the Holy Spirit, through believers, convicts the world of sin, its false righteousness, and bad or unrighteous judgment about Jesus, poor judgment about who Jesus is. So the disciples continue to discover their mission. And they continue to discover that their mission is bigger than them. It's a lot bigger than they thought it was. The second half of verse 4, Jesus says, And these things I did not say to you at the beginning. Why? Well, because I was with you. And later on, we hear in this same passage, we hear him say, You're not ready for some of the things that, you're, you know, that he still hasn't told them. And so we get this idea that he understands that his disciples need to hear things at certain times along the way. And in this case, he says, I was with you. You didn't need to hear all that I'm telling you now that I'm just hours away from my death. So on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus has begun to tell them things that he had never said before. Now, what are these things? We kind of have to figure it out. It doesn't get explicit about exactly, you know, which things that we're hearing here or the first time we know from the reveal from what's in scripture what hasn't come before but we can we can identify three things i think that he had not talked to them about before first he hadn't told them about his return to the father he had told them about his death and his resurrection right he told them that many times and they didn't get it. But he'd never actually said, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go back to heaven, back to the, to the glory I had before I, before I came to earth. Second, Jesus hadn't told them about the hatred of the world. John, here in John, last week in John 15, was the first time Jesus tells them about the world's hatred of them as far as we know from scripture and third jesus hadn't told them about their mission at least not in this kind of detail jesus is unfolding for them bit by bit their cross shaped their cruciform mission to the world his cross is only hours away and his cross will give birth to their crosses that, that's, that's the Christian life. The cross of Christ that saves us, saves us gives birth to our crosses that we bear as those who have been saved by His cross. And so the cross will be the focal point of this mission, their mission, our mission. They're being sent out into the world as messengers of the cross and as bearers of their cross. We might ask, though, why hadn't Jesus 
talked to them about these things before. Well, he says, again, it's because he was still with them. And as long as Christ was physically present, they didn't need, these weren't the most urgent things for them to know, you know about their future persecution and even their future mission that would begin after he left. And Jesus just, he just knew they weren't ready to hear about his departure. And he was right. His departure to heaven after his death and resurrection was just not something they were able to comprehend or accept. Until now, then, their, their job was to follow Jesus, absorb his teaching, and learn how to trust him. But now their job is changing. Things are about to change dramatically, in fact, with their job, their mission. The cross changes everything. Jesus will no longer be with them physically. He's simultaneously leaving them and giving them a new calling, new mission. If we, if we just kind of stop there and think about it, this is a lot for these guys to process on this original Maundy Thursday. That's the Thursday before Good Friday. So how, how do you think these men felt as Jesus tells them these things, he, he's, he's telling them, essentially, I'm, I'm leaving. The world is going to hate you, throw you out of synagogues, persecute you, and you need to testify to them about me. And I'm gone, by the way. I'm, I'm not going to be here. That was a big one for them. I'm not going to be here. Well, Jesus tells us how they felt in verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That was a natural response, and, and we can perhaps sense some sympathy here on the part of Jesus. But it wasn't really the most faithful response. And in fact, more than anything, what we see is Jesus gently rebuking them. He's rebuking their self-centered self-pity. Look at verse 5. But now, I go, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? In other words, they're not, they don't really care about the words coming out of his mouth, the things that, he, that he's telling them. They're not triggering the right kind of questions and concerns about what he has in mind. Their thoughts are consumed with themselves and their situation. And, and think about this. Jesus is the one going to the cross. And yet they can only think about how this, this series of events is affecting them. Do they care about Jesus and how he is feeling? They care about how they feel. What about how Jesus is feeling and what he's thinking? Are they interested in what Jesus thinks or desires Going forward, it doesn't look like it. His, his concerns are eclipsed by theirs. They're like the guy who travels to Rome and to, to visit the Colosseum there. And when he gets there, he, he takes a selfie in front of the Colosseum. And then when, when he gets home and he's scrolling through his pictures, he realizes that that, that picture of, of him in the Colosseum 
in front of the Colosseum was really just a picture of him because his, his head was in the way and he can't see the, the main thing. Can't see much of the Colosseum at all. All you can see is his face. The, the thing that should have been the focal point of the picture was eclipsed by the man himself. And the disciples are eclipsing Jesus and his thoughts with themselves and their thoughts in a similar kind of way. They're, they're not even concerned enough about Jesus to ask him, you know, where are you going? You know, what's the deal here? Give us some details. How is this a part of your mission? How is this a part of your, the, the, you know, the last three years? Tell us about this. What's going on? What about you? Do you think much about Jesus and his mission to the world? Do you think much about the things that he cares about? Are, are you interested to know what Jesus thinks about his cross and how it relates to your 70 or 80 years on this earth? Or are you too concerned about your own cares to care about Christ and the Spirit and what they would like for you to be doing with your time and resources? When you think about where you want to live, where you want to attend church, where you want to work, what you want to do with your life. How much of your thoughts are driven by the mission that you are given by Christ and his spirit as a disciple of Jesus? A mission that you received at your baptism. When you make your pros and cons list, how much does the cross of Christ and the cross that he has given you to bear factor in to your various decision-making processes. Becoming a more faithful disciple of Jesus means becoming increasingly interested in how your decisions will impact the kingdom of God and decreasingly interested on how, in how they will impact you. The grief of these original disciples on this original Maundy Thursday is great no doubt, for good reasons. But it's actually insignificant compared to the grief that their master is enduring already, and especially the grief that he's about to endure in just a few hours, less than a day. Jesus isn't, belittle, isn't belittling their pain. He doesn't belittle your pain. But he is lifting up their eyes. He's lifting up their eyes to look beyond their circumstances to a much greater and, and much, much more important reality. You see, what will happen to Jesus on that Roman cross tomorrow is infinitely more important than their health or their safety or even their dashed hopes today. And the same is true for us on this side of Calvary. What happened to Jesus on a Roman cross on Good Friday is infinitely more important than your health or your safety or all the other things that you care so much about today. Jesus is teaching the disciples, he's teaching us to live for something bigger. Your mission from Christ 
and his spirit is bigger than your plans and your ambitions and your hopes and your dreams. Your mission is worth giving up comforts and conveniences. It's worth giving up stability and security and safety and serenity. It's more important than your reputation or your retirement. It's better than being affluent or at ease. Many, even many Christians end up investing most of their energy and money and influence and talents and time in things that will be gone before they are. Jesus commissions us to invest everything, all that we have, all that we are, all the years that he gives us in something far bigger, far greater, far more significant than ourselves. He calls us to invest everything in his service. In verse 7, Jesus indicates that our mission requires supernatural assistance. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, the thought here is not that Jesus and the Spirit can't simultaneously minister to, to God's people on earth. You know, as if that can't happen at the same time for some unknown reason. That, that'd be a strange notion, a strange assumption to bring to the text. No, the point Jesus is making has to do with the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel promised that the Spirit would characterize, be characterized by excuse me, promised that the age to come, the the Messianic age, would be characterized by the Spirit. The Spirit would characterize this age. The people of God had been trained then by their scriptures to anticipate the coming of God's Spirit during the reign of God through the Messiah. And yet this saving reign of God couldn't be fully inaugurated until Jesus had gone to the cross. He had to die, rise from the dead, and then he also, this is key, he had to be exalted to the throne, to the right hand of God. So that's the, that's the full cross event. The, the perfect life lived up to the, to the time of the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the ascension to the eternal throne of the Messiah. All that had to happen in order for these messianic promises of the Spirit and the Old Covenant to be fulfilled. So that's the point here. One preacher put it in a preacherly kind of way. He said, The Spirit will be sent by Jesus to live in the disciples of Jesus as they continue the mission of Jesus to call others to follow Jesus. So we need the Spirit for all kinds of reasons. But the focus here is on the necessity of having the Spirit's power to accomplish our mission as disciples. So Jesus didn't send the Spirit to secure or assure a comfortable life. That's not what it means when when we read that the Spirit is the comforter. 
He doesn't give us a life of comfort. The Spirit has come. He's been given to empower you for a mission that you can't do on your own apart from Him, apart from His help. Verse 7 also ought to temper any desire that we might harbor to have been in Galilee when Jesus was there, when he was alive, when he was doing his ministry. We may be tempted to think, oh, if, if only I could have seen Jesus and witnessed his miracles and maybe, maybe had a conversation or two with him and maybe been on the road to Emmaus with him when he's, when he's giving that Bible study. If only I could have had something like that as the 12 disciples did. That would just really bolster my faith. But Jesus insists that it's better to be alive now than then. It's better to be alive now after the Spirit has been sent. The coming of the Spirit marks the triumphant inbreaking, the breaking in of God's saving reign that was talked about so much in the Old Testament, particularly in those prophets. The coming of the Spirit marks that new, the beginning of that new covenant. Before the Spirit came in power, virtually all the world ignored the claims of the true God, the true claims of the true God. And this, this was the case for thousands of years. History before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ascension, before the giving of the Spirit, before that cross event, we could call it, was, was marked by unbelief, not belief. The gospel wasn't growing before Pentecost. The point in history when all this changed, in fact, was Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent to earth by the Father and the Son to live in, his, in, in the people of God. Since Pentecost, millions upon millions of people have been called out of the world and brought into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. The kingdom was not growing before Pentecost, but after, Pente after Pentecost and because of Pentecost, the kingdom has been expanding and will continue to expand until Jesus returns. Those who are of the world will continue to have their eyes opened. They will continue to be brought to repentance. They will continue to see the truth about their sin, about their self-righteousness, and about their poor judgment about who Christ is. The Spirit will continue to convict the world of these things, bringing many to repentance and to a saving knowledge of Christ. Let's, let's look now at the very dense verses 8 to 11 that cause us problems and commentator problems commentator's problems. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, for they do not believe in me. I'm altering it just a little bit. Of righteousness, for I go to my Father and you see me no more. 
of judgment for the ruler of this world is judged. The word convict is probably the, one of the easiest words to figure out what it means and, and what's going on here. It means to shame and to shame in such a way as to lead to repentance. It's a very subjective thing. It's a very personal thing, a personal conviction, a conviction that happens in the heart. And it's one of the ways that, that we know that these three words, sin, righteousness, and judgment, are personal failures, iniquities, shortcomings that the Spirit convicts someone of so that they turn and repent of these things. The Spirit convicts unbelievers with regard to their sin, their false righteousness, and their unrighteous judgment about Christ. So let's look at them one by one. And, and, and as, I, as I alluded, as I hinted at before, the, these, these are, because this is a dense passage where John, Jesus fits a lot in with few words, there's a lot of different interpretations. But I think there's a clear best one, and I'll give that to you. Mostly in broad strokes. Verse 9, he convicts the world of sin, for they don't believe in Jesus. So this is my, maybe the easiest of the three. The, the Holy Spirit presses home the world's sin despite its unbelief. And even because of its unbelief, he, he has drawn them irresistibly in this way because they, they don't believe. And that's what he has to do. That's, what, that's how the Spirit saves an unbeliever, right? Because they, they don't believe and because they need to be saved, the Spirit convicts them of their sin. And so we need to see this conviction as, as a gracious activity of the Spirit. It's designed to bring worldly men and women, boys and girls, to recognize their need for the Savior and consequently to stop being members of the world. That's how, that's how the Spirit calls us out of the world. Verse 10 says, He convicts the world of righteousness, for Jesus has gone to the Father, and we see Him no more. So what's that mean? Well, you, you, you may have noticed that when, when I get to the word righteousness, I, I paraphrase it with, with phrases like self-righteousness or false righteousness. We could also throw in works righteousness. It kind of gets at it part of what's going on here. Jesus is criticizing their religious righteousness, their man-made righteousness, which they prize more than true righteousness, the righteousness of God. And that's what, that's what we've seen throughout the whole Gospel of John as Jesus interacts with these religious leaders and even false believers. In his Gospel, John loves to quote Isaiah and Isaiah 64, 6 says that Israel's false displays of righteousness back then, 700 years earlier, when Isaiah was writing, are like filthy rags, like menstrual cloth. Paul critiqued the Jews of his day in Romans 10, 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is a critique of many in the book of John. The righteousness of the Jews of Jesus' day was like a filthy menstrual cloth because they rejected the righteousness of Christ 
in favor of establishing or maintaining a righteousness of their own, of their own doing, of their own conception. Any attempt to be right before God apart from the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ is false righteousness. And the Spirit came to convict sinners of such self-righteousness, which, which takes a lot of different forms, and to lead them to submit to God's righteousness in Christ. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount telling his audience that the righteousness of the Pharisees doesn't cut it. That doesn't cut it. That's the kind of righteousness that, Je that Jesus is critiquing here in John 16, 10. But what, what do we do with that last part of the verse? The Spirit convicts the world of its false and filthy self-righteousness because or for since I go to my Father and you see me no more. So what's that mean? How's that, how do we connect? How are those two things related? One of, one of Jesus' most striking roles in all the Gospels was to expose the emptiness of the world's pretensions. His bright light exposed the darkness for, for exactly what it was. And now that Jesus is leaving, how's that, how's that convicting activity going to continue? Well, Jesus says it'll continue through the work of the Spirit. Since Jesus is no longer here to do it himself, the Holy Spirit will do it in his absence. And so that phrase, since, you know, basically the Spirit's going to convict of righteousness because I'm leaving and I can't, I'm not going to be here to do it anymore. He's, in other words, he's going to continue what I started. There's not going to be a break in this convicting work the convicting of righteousness work. Verse 11 says, He convicts the world of judgment, for the ruler of this world is judged. Like the sin in verse 9 and the false righteousness in verse 10, the unrighteous judgment in verse 11 is a failure and iniquity which brings personal guilt that must be repented of. The world's bad judgment about Christ was supremely manifested in its unrighteous treatment of Jesus. In killing the Christ rather than accepting Him and trusting in Him and following Him, they judged the situation very badly. Their judgment about Jesus was dead wrong. And it was wrong in a deadly kind of way. And turn back in your Bibles to just a few pages to John 7, and we can see a little bit of, of the background here, just in one spot at least. John 7, and we'll look at verse 24 at the end of a passage there, John 7, 24. And... In verses 16 to 24, which I think I did a, a sermon on, I don't, I don't know if I broke that one up or not. It's kind of a, a unit here, a passage. Jesus admonish, admonishes the Jews 
concerning their sinfulness, their religious righteousness, false religious righteousness, and their unrighteous judgment. Now, not all those words are used, but if you read verses 16 to 24, you see that's exactly what's going on in in kind of that order. You can go home and read it this afternoon. And verse 24 says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, judge rightly who I am and what's going on here in my ministry and what I'm about. Don't misjudge it. Because that's what they were doing. Righteous judgment recognizes who Jesus is. Unrighteous judgment rejects Jesus. Righteous judgment imitates the judgment of Jesus. Unrighteous judgment wants Jesus dead. Righteous judgment, as we'll see in a second, seeks God's will. Unrighteous judgment seeks its own will. And if you flip flip just maybe a page or two back to John 5, verse 30, you'll see where Jesus calls His own judgment righteous. John 5, 30. I could of myself do nothing as I hear I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. So one of the, one of the threads in the Gospel of John is righteous versus unrighteous judgment. And John, in John, Jesus contrasts his righteous judgment with the unrighteous judgment of the world. And now that Jesus is gone, the Spirit continues this work of convicting the world of its bad, sinful, poor, unrighteous judgment. The main evidence of the world's poor discernment, we could call it, is the devil's defeat on the cross. Because of Christ's victory, The devil stands judged. And this proves that it's a bad idea, an awful idea to reject Christ. 1 John 3, 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is condemned. The devil has been judged Through the cross, he has been defeated, destroyed, it says, condemned, judged. And those who make the same judgment about Christ, you see how that passage from 1 John compares the unbelief, the sinning, it says, of of the devil and those who are of the devil, children of the devil. Those who make the same judgment about Christ as Satan did will be condemned right along with Satan forever if they do not repent. Unrighteous judgment is characteristic of the one who was a sinner from the very beginning. And Satan's children, the world, cannot help but imitate his values. If the devil stands condemned because of the triumph of Christ, though, then the unrighteous judgment of those who follow him is duly exposed. The Holy Spirit's work in convicting the world of sin and of righteousness, false righteousness and bad judgment, sinful judgment, unrighteous judgment is truly the work 
of the Holy Spirit. It's not your work or mine or anyone else's. There's nothing you can do to convict anyone of their sin or their self-righteousness or their unrighteous judgment. And yet, astonishingly, Jesus says here that the Spirit accomplishes this work through us, through believers. The Holy Spirit's mission is your mission. And and to see this, you need to go back up to verses 7 and 8 of John 16. So go back to our text, John 16. Twice in verse 7, Jesus says that the Helper, the Spirit, is coming to you. The Helper will come to you. I will send Him to you. That's the first thing we hear about with, with regard to this Holy Spirit, this Comforter. And yet in the very next verse, John 16, 8, He says, And when He comes, He will convict the world of sin, etc., So how does the Holy Spirit convince or convict the world or we could say a person to repent of his sin or his filthy righteousness or his bad judgment regarding Christ? How does the Holy Spirit work faith in Christ in a person? Well, if we put verses 7 and 8 together, we see that he does it through means, through Believers, through the testimony of disciples. He speaks through Christians. Disciples of Jesus are agents of the Holy Spirit in convicting the world. His mission is our mission. The Holy Spirit's mission is your mission and mine. We saw last week in the Last two verses of John 15, this very thing. There there at the end of John 15, it's the Holy Spirit who bears witness through the disciples. So he says, you you bear witness, talking to the disciples, but it's the Holy Spirit who's doing it through them. And now in chapter 16, the same Spirit is accomplishing his mission through his disciples. Their mission, your mission, every believer's mission, the church's mission, Christ the King's mission can only be accomplished by the power of the indwelling Spirit of the living God. Every inch, every inch of the gospel's progress over the last two millennia has been the result of the Holy Spirit's power. Every inch of your growth in grace and godliness throughout your life has been a result of the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Working in you to, to, to will, to work according to God's will and plan and purposes. One theologian has said that if you don't realize the, the Spirit's power in your life, it may be because you aren't busy doing things that only the Spirit can accomplish. Let me say that again. If you don't realize the the Spirit's power in your life, if it's not something that you see or experience, the Holy Spirit working powerfully through you, 
It may be because you aren't busy doing the things that only the Spirit can do, can accomplish. Think about that as you think about how you order your life. Does that, does that kind of describe you? Are your days and weeks and years filled up with tasks that, that, you, can, that you can accomplish quite on your own, apart from the help of the Spirit? There, there's a lot that we can do. Uh, there's a lot that the world can do, right, without the aid of the Spirit, but there's, there's a lot that we can do without the aid of the Spirit. You can, you can love people who think and act like you and share your ideas without the aid of the Spirit. You can, you can sit through an hour and a half worship service without the aid of the Spirit. Not, not that hard. You, you can make yourself look like a Christian in all kinds of ways without actually having the Spirit. But there are things that you can't do without the help of the Helper. Without the Spirit's help, you, you, you can't ever get yourself to plead on behalf of your unbelieving friends or family members that they would come to repentance and faith in Christ. That kind of pleading with God in prayer requires the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit's help, you can't worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Without the Spirit's help, you can't love someone who wants to hurt you. To accomplish your mission, the Spirit's mission, you need the Spirit's powerful aid. To be successful in the job that God has given you to do, the Spirit must drive you just as He drove Jesus into the wilderness. He must drive you into the world. Equipping you, aiding you along the way. Let's look briefly the last four verses, 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that He will take of mine and declare it to you. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I think the Holy Spirit is imitating Jesus. He's being just like Jesus because Jesus says very similar things about Himself with relation to the Father. You know, I didn't come on my own authority. I say what I've heard and, and, and what I've seen. That's what I do. Well, here Jesus says the Spirit does the same thing. And the Holy Spirit guides believers in all truth. And that doesn't mean that the, that the, Spirit, that, that the Spirit is, is going to give believers knowledge about everything. He, he's not, he doesn't promise to teach us everything about everything from the hard sciences to the humanities. That's not the point at all. The way it works is that the Spirit of God, working alongside the living and active Word of God, takes us deeper and deeper into the gospel truths about God and Christ and the cross and eternal life and righteousness. 
He reveals to us more of our sins. He reveals to us more of the righteousness of God as he exposes our self-righteousness and false righteousness. He confirms our righteous judgment about Jesus, correcting our lingering poor judgments about Jesus and his word and his gospel. The phrase all truth communicates, really, if you think about it, it, it communicates increasing liberation, freedom. Why do I say that? Well, back, remember what Jesus says back in John 8, that the truth makes us what? Free. This means that knowing all truth makes us all the way free. So you want to be free? You want to experience freedom? Then submit yourself to the truth. And all of this glorifies Christ. That's what the Spirit came to do, is glorify Jesus, God's Son, the crucified and resurrected King. That's, that's, his, that's his purpose, is to bring glory to Jesus. And so when the, when the Spirit takes the truth about Jesus and He reveals it to you, He opens up your mind and your heart to see those glorious things, this brings great glory to our Savior. 1 Corinthians 2 9 and 10 say, That which no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart of man has imagined, that which God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. The Spirit's revelation of Jesus the Christ brings Jesus utmost glory. And just think about how much the Spirit loves to do that. He loves to do His job. He loves to bring glory to the Father and the Son, particularly here, the Son. And when He reveals the truth to those that are, He's calling out of the world, this glorifies Jesus greatly. That's why Jesus sent the Spirit. That's why the Spirit came. He came to convict the world and to guide believers. He convicts the world. He guides believers. And in doing these things, He glorifies Jesus. Let's pray that we would imitate the Spirit in this way. Father, we thank You for this glorious good news that You have sent not only your Son, but also your Spirit. And you have done it for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom of Christ Jesus. Help us to walk in the Spirit and to imitate the Spirit in glorifying, by glorifying Jesus in everything that we do and think and say, the way we order our lives. We need your help. We need your assistance. We need the supernatural power the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. So please give that to us. In Jesus' name, amen.